Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp. I'm your host today on New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. We're here today with historian and journalist Gabby Malberg. She recently published earlier this year The English Republican Exiles in Europe During the Restoration by Cambridge University Press, a passage in the Ideas and Context series. Welcome to the, to the podcast, Gabby. Hello. So first and foremost, can you discuss and kind of elaborate a little bit on the selection of this striking cover image to your book? Um, Yes, that was actually not a very easy thing to do because my three exiles are nowhere in an image together, of course. And then there's only images of either Sydney or Ludlow, but not of Neville. So I had to find something that kind of represents the whole setup in a way. And I went for an image that shows a coaching in in Augsburg. Um, And to me, that kind of, signifies or symbolizes, you know, um, the travels, the journey that those Republicans were on. Um, And actually, Sydney spent time in Germany and also in Augsburg. And I like to imagine or think to myself that maybe he would have stayed at a place like this as he was resting on his travels or changing his horses. So um, it's it's not directly... um, of the exiles themselves, but um, it represents what they were doing. So let's get to it. What were the circumstances of the interregnum exile um, for each of the English Civil War Republicans that you focus on? Uh, Algernon Sidney, Edmund Ludlow, and Henry Neville. And why did certain Republicans remain in England during the Restoration? In your response, and, and if at all possible, please address any regicide warrants and their largely positive Republican liberty prior to exile. Yeah, so all three of my exiles, Algernon Sidney, Edmund Ludlow, and Henry Neville, they all had been very staunch parliamentarians and defenders of the Republican cause during the English Civil War and during the Interregnum. So they had essentially fought against the arbitrary power of the king and for popular sovereignty, the rule of law, and liberty of conscience. And Sidney and Ludlow also both had a very distinguished army career behind them. And all three of them served at various stages on the Council of State, which was essentially an executive committee that had taken over the government following the execution of Charles I after the Civil War. And in the English Civil War, the parliamentary side had won over the royalists. So the parliament had been purged of its moderate elements and the high court of justice was then set up to try the king for treason against his people. And we know that Sidney participated in some sessions of the trial and Ludlow was even amongst those who signed the king's death warrant. 
while Neville only joined Parliament after the regicide. So he was not actually directly involved. He became a kind of recruiter to the Parliament later in 1649. But it's pretty safe to say that all three of them either approved of or condoned the removal or execution of the king as a tyrant who had ruled arbitrarily over his own people. Then, after the king's execution, the rump of the Long Parliament um, abolished the office of king and the House of Lords, including the bishops who represented the power of the Church of England, and they started from scratch with a popular government. So my exiles have been living their ideal of Republican liberty, as you said earlier. They were active, self-governing citizens. Then as members of parliaments, as MPs, they had been brought into power by the principle of popular sovereignty that was exercised through elections, elections through the people, and they were shaping their country's destiny themselves through their political service. So they were also on their way to creating a new religious settlement with the help of the Westminster Assembly that was meant to establish liberty of conscience, at least for all Protestants. So they were very much involved in what they were preaching, if you like. And all this was then challenged by the continued influence of the army, um, this permanent presence of a very strong military power and the rise of Oliver Cromwell, who eventually decided to dissolve Parliament in 1653 because he got really impatient with the lack of progress they were making, and um, established the instrument of government as the new constitution of the country, England's first written constitution, and then as Lord Protector became the new ruler of England. And this is where the, really, where the hopes and dreams of many of my English Republicans were crushed, and those who opposed this military-backed rule turned against Oliver Cromwell, whom they saw as a traitor to their cause. And even though my Republicans might have fought in the army themselves and had military careers themselves, they did not think that um, the military should have any permanent place in the administration of a country, but that a government should be firmly in civilian hands. So when you look at Republican writings, um, they were defenders of citizen militias rather than what they saw as mercenary army. So the rise of Oliver Cromwell to Lord Protector and then his establishment later of another House of Parliament that contained a number of army grandees in the place of the old uh, hereditary law came quite as a big shock that led to the creation or um, the establishment of a considerable opposition movement. And after the death of Cromwell and the succession of his son, Richard, the Republican faction tried to win influence again and rebuild the country according to their ideals. But there is so much disagreement between the different factions and instability of the various short-lived governments that in the end then facilitated the restoration of the Stuart monarchy. Um, and the Republicans who had once actively shaped government in England became a kind of persecuted underground movement. So 
um, well, while not all former Republicans were endangered to quite the same degree, um, so not all former Republicans were endangered to quite the same degree, which might explain why some people stayed in England, why others left the country. Um, so when Charles II issued his Declaration of Breda um, from the Netherlands in 1660, um, before he returned to England, he had promised to forgive those who had acted against his father in the English Civil War. This was like his attempt um, to reconcile the country, to reunite it after two decades of political upheaval. And soon after Charles II then had been established in England after the Restoration, his convention parliament passed the Act of Indemnity and Oblivion, which pardoned many, but still singled out a smaller number of people for exemplary punishment. And they were primarily those who were known as regicides, who were more or less directly involved in the trial and execution of um, the king's father. And that, of course, included Ludlow, though not Sidney and Neville. So while Ludlow was not singled out for a death penalty, he was still asked to surrender. And, of course, he did not trust that he would survive in the long run. So he first went into hiding in England before he then made his escape to the continent. So, on that note, did evidence of Edmund Ludlow's flight to the continent undermine his own account? And how did military connections, civic and familial connections, as well as reformed Protestants, ladies as well as ministers, facilitate his journey to and stay in Geneva? And uh, what role did uh, Jean de Labadee play? Um, well, what I think is clear is that Ludlow very carefully constructed his account of his escape to the continent to fit into this typical Puritan providential narrative in which the Lord guides him every step of the way and he has very little agency himself. So in the way in which he describes his flight, the events all sound a lot more accidental or at least less thought through than they realistically could have been. Um, if you escape to the continent, um, you would have to do a lot of planning. And um, this would also have involved a number of other people that would help you along the way. So the people that were hiding Ludlow in London, the people that secured a boat for his channel crossing to France, the people that received him on the other side, the merchant banker that provided him with money, and even the people that received him at Geneva. So an important part of Ludlow's network, for instance, was provided by people connected to the French church in London, um, the Huguenot church that itself consisted of Protestant religious refugees from France and that now in their turn helped Ludlow um, through their family contacts to travel through France to Geneva. And then, of course, when he arrived in Geneva, um, itself, Ludlow also had already two established contacts. One of them was uh, the Huguenot and former soldier Charles Perrault, who had fought on the side of Parliament in the English Civil War as a mercenary, and who um, was a military connection of Ludlow's. 
He was a member of the council in Geneva, so he was a political figure there and also took Ludlow into his own house and uh, mobilized his fellow councillors to make arrangements for his protection in, in the city. And then the second uh, um, important person who you already mentioned um, was uh, Jean de Labadie. He was a converted Jesuit, uh, so um, a very radical Calvinist uh, preacher who had also had established contacts to the former Republican government in England and was willing to take Ludlow under his wing when he arrived, and especially in this situation when the Genevan Council was no longer able or willing, rather, to protect him. And by that time, Ludlow had been joined in Geneva by two further regicides, um, William Corley and John Lyle, and they were uh, slightly getting nervous because there was news that the Dutch government had just delivered three other regicides in hiding, Miles Corbett, John Barkstead, and John Oakey, into the hands of the English authorities. So the presence of their divisive, of these divisive political figures was also becoming a bit of a headache, a bit of a diplomatic issue, really, for Geneva. Because, of course, um, we mustn't forget that they were persecuted enemies of the English government at a time when a little place like Geneva was generally trying to have friendly relations both with England but also with its big neighbor, France which was home to the Queen Mother, Henrietta Maria, um, and to Charles II's sister, um, the Duchess of Anjou. Um, she, had, she had married um, the French king's younger brother. And both of them were actively involved in either hunting down the regicides on the continent or supporting people who were hunting them down. And it didn't look particularly good for Geneva to be seen to be harboring regicides. So um, when, when um, the council wanted to put through um, a petition um, to grant Ladlow, Lyon and Corley formal protection in Geneva, it, it actually didn't make it through the council. Um, and, and, and they got very nervous and felt it was time to go elsewhere, time to move on. And this is then where Jean de Labadie comes in because he had, again, useful connections within the Protestant world. And um, he uh, was friends with or friendly with uh, the chief minister of Bern, a man called Johann Heinrich Hummel, who was able to recommend the English exiles to the Bernese Council, which was a lot um, less dependent on the goodwill of France and uh, could very much afford to take in the regicides, if you like. I mean, Hummel was somebody who himself had lived in um, in England. He had studied there for a while. He was friendly with um, kind of churchmen in England. And he was also able to communicate with the exiles in English, which was quite handy. So he could become a go-between between the exiles and the local authorities. And the Council of Bern then granted the exiles asylum on the grounds of, and this is interesting, religious persecution in their home country. Um, because they adhered to the Reformed faith. They were Reformed Protestants. So instead of being seen to be protecting regicides, they were officially protecting religious refugees, which was comparatively slightly less 
contentious or less politically sensitive, if you like. And of course, um, uh, uh, another point that is maybe not unimportant is that the English regicides were, of course, independents or congregationalists, and in principle, not the same kind of Protestants as the people of Bern, who were essentially Presbyterian. Um, but strangely or interestingly, in the bigger scheme of things to them, it didn't really matter because they saw them as fellow Protestants who shared their faith. And they saw this commonality as more important than the, the, the little formalities that might have divided them. Please trace Algernon Sidney's journey, another Republican exile, from his ambassadorial position in uh, Sweden in Denmark to his work for the English Merchant Adventures Company, and then on to the Swedish Queen Christina and his diplomatic mission in Catholic Rome, where he apparently witnessed papal secession and engaged in the upper echelons of religious politics uh, via Jansenist as well as uh, Gallican connections. Yes, um, Algernon Sidney's journey into exile was, was quite different, actually, from that of Ludlow. And, and that was mainly because he was already outside of England when the restoration happened. Um, but at the same time, it was also harder for him to assess the actual degree of danger that he might be in because he was on a diplomatic mission on behalf of the Commonwealth government in Copenhagen when he found out about the re-establishment of the English monarchy. He had been away negotiating a peace treaty over, over naval access uh, to the Baltic Sound in Sweden and Denmark when he heard the news, and he was not really sure where to turn or, or what his role would, now, would, would be now. Um, and he was even considering the possibility that he could still remain in office as an English envoy under the new government. And, and seriously played with the idea of just staying put and waiting for the king's new order. Um, and this is something I find absolutely remarkable, that an English Republican official would think that he would be able to stay in office under the new monarchy. But that is also part of Sidney's internal logic, that he was in office on the basis of his merit and on the basis of his status or social status, and that this was somehow unaffected by the specific form of government in England because he was serving his country first, and then any specific government second. But of course, it also did not take long before his friends and family in England then provided him with a little reality check. And his father then strongly advised him to stay out of the country and travel the continent for a while until the dust had settled in England. Because at the time it was still rather unclear what would happen to supporters and agents of the Commonwealth government. The idea to travel to Germany came from Sidney's father, the, the Earl of Leicester, I think. And it's not accidental that Sidney would seek help from the Merchant Adventurers Company in Hamburg, because merchants in that period also fulfilled a kind of diplomatic function as well. They were to some extent representatives of the English government abroad that were well connected in the country and certainly able to help out an English traveler with accommodation and with other practical assistance. So 
sometimes merchants could also act as bankers abroad and 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 just uh, have a kind of diplomatic sort of function. Uh, Sydney's gratitude uh, to Samuel Missenden, the secretary of the Merchant Adventures Company, clearly shows that he must played an important part because he later tries um, to get some sort of office or uh, some sort of sinecure for for Missenden as a reward for helping him out. But Hamburg, of course, is also um, the place, as you've already mentioned, um, where Sydney is thought to have met the former Swedish Queen and Catholic convert Christina, who then might have encouraged him to go to Rome. And and she certainly remained a key contact when he arrived in Rome, and she might have introduced him then to the cardinals of the Squadrone Volante. Um, that was quite an influential group around um, the Pope at the time. And especially Christina's confidant, Dito Azzolino, is variously mentioned with very great respect by Sydney, who otherwise actually didn't like Catholics at all and, you know, as, as a Puritan, you know, made his jokes about them, didn't take them seriously. But he is mentioned with, with a lot of respect and seems to be the person within that group that Sydney knew best. And I find that interesting because Azzolino had worked in the papal secretariat of state and he was being lobbied by English and Irish Catholics for the restoration of an English uh, cardinal. Because England, of course, uh, had not had its own cardinal in decades. Um, The role had been removed over the course of the Reformation when England had become a Protestant country with a Protestant state church. But because the Stuarts were known to be Catholic sympathizers or rather crypto-Catholics, there was hope again that Catholicism could regain some sort of foothold in the country. And this, in turn, is interesting for our Puritan Republicans, because like Catholics, they were a religious minority. They were outside the official Church of England that fought against legal discrimination and hoped to gain liberty of conscience from the new government. So my argument is that Puritans and Catholics had actually very good reason to work together and become allies in undermining the religious monopoly of the Church of England. And there were certainly strands of Catholicism that were more or less suited to that, um, and and strands of Catholicism that were closer to dissenting Protestantism than others, or that agreed on certain points with them, that, that shared some common ground. Um, And one interesting group here, of course, were the Jansenists, um, named after the Dutch theologian Cornelis Jansen, who formed a movement inside Catholicism and shared with English Puritans, for instance, the rejection of free will, a belief in predestination, and a very strong emphasis on conscience. And this emphasis on conscience made them both very strong opponents of monarchical absolutism and strong critics of papal infallibility. So Jansenists also separated religious and political allegiance, which means that they were prepared to obey the powers that be. Um, So 
this meant that Jansenism was a form of Catholicism or, or a brand of Catholicism that would have been compatible with life under a Protestant monarch, for instance. And from this perspective, Jansenism is then also kind of connected or related um, to the doctrine of Gallicanism, which also did not see the Pope as a superior authority, but considered the Pope as a primus inter pares um, amongst the bishops. So this meant the Pope's authority did not take precedence over that of a worldly ruler, which again meant that Catholicism could exist with Protestant government, uh, could coexist with a Protestant government. And if Catholics could be accommodated under Protestant monarchy, why should the same not be true for Protestant dissenters? What was the significance, and perhaps insignificance, of the Presbyterian plot of 1661 and the Yorkshire Rising of 1663 to exile machinations and Ludlow's abhorrence of plots, particularly in the context of Sidney's involvement in the 1665 exiles' aborted invasion of England from Rotterdam? Well, first of all, it's important to know that a lot of suspected plots during the 1660s were not real, but they were more or less imagined. Or the significance of the words spoken and of meetings held and so on was very much exaggerated. Because the new Stuart uh, or the newly restored Stuart monarchy was still very shaky and very afraid of internal opponents, especially of a political underground made up of a range of groups of Republicans, levelers and fanatics as they called them. Um, Anybody who had opposed the monarchy or fought against it during the Civil War and who had been on the side of the Commonwealth and interregnum regime. So the secretaries of state, who, who were essentially like heading the Secret Service and the agents, were watching this underground very closely. And they made use of informers and spies and they clamped down on the press to contain any opposition movement. And you could clearly see a certain paranoia of a government that was not secure in its foundations and that could not simply rely on the loyalty of its subjects. So the Presbyterian plot of 1661 is therefore a very good example of a plot that probably never existed, but that was used as an excuse to arrest known opponents. And they happened to be people from Neville's closer circles, people who met at different London taverns and coffee houses to discuss politics, but who might not have posed a serious threat. People like James Harrington, who was a close friend of Henry Neville, and John Wildman, who was another ally of his, were arrested. Neville himself was put under surveillance. But also, interestingly, Ludlow was the suspect in that plot, although he wasn't even at the country, in the country at the time, which probably shows you how tenuous the evidence for this plot really was. Then um, the 1663 Yorkshire Rising or Northern Plot is quite a different matter because there actually was evidence of relatively concrete plans among Republicans and dissenters of different backgrounds to gather in Yorkshire in October that year for a rebellion that would then depose the monarchy and re-establish the government of the Long Parliament. And those Yorkshire rebels, as they're often called, had contacts abroad on the continent, mainly in the United Provinces, 
who supplied them both with uh, funds and with weapons, and who would have been also ready to assist their allies in any way. However, this plot was discovered in time by the, by the government agents and the people that had gathered or could be found um, in its wake were then arrested. Um, and also Henry Neville was arrested in the wake of that plot for um, having spoken or being accused of having spoken treason against the government. Now, Neville was then taken to the Tower of London and probably would have spent a long time there if, he had, if it hadn't been for his royalist family connection and for influential friends that helped him to make a deal with the Lord Chancellor Edward Hyde, Earl of Clarendon, to leave the country. Never was then released from the Tower on condition that he would leave England so that he would no longer pose a, a security risk. And, 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 and he would go to Rome where he would then act as some sort of informer for Clarendon. And again, Rome was a very interesting place um, um, to find out more about the activities of English or Irish Catholics and uh, um, to find out about negotiations that might have been going on about the future of Catholicism in England. Now, in terms of further opposition activity, the Yorkshire plot of 1663 might have been connected, of course, to Sydney's later attempt at an invasion of England from abroad with, with the help of foreign troops during the Anglo-Dutch War. Um, because, as I said before, there were large numbers of migrants from England and Scotland in the United Provinces. And many of them were religious and political dissenters who had left England over the decades, not just after the Restoration, but people who had really left a long time ago uh, to, to get away from the Stuart government and who had by now established livelihoods there, but who still wanted to support the opposition back home. And they were then also joined by new exiles from the Restoration regime. So these exiles, many of whom had concentrated in Rotterdam, would then become Sydney's main target group when he was uh, um, trying to gather people together uh, and rally support for another plot to restore Republican government in England. Um, the problem, of course, was that Sydney did not only need people willing to back him, but he also needed funds and troops, and most of all, the backing of a foreign power. Um, and this proved the most difficult to obtain because it was a highly risky cause with a very small chance of success. And the political fallout could have been dramatic. Um, so Sydney's first choice was the Dutch Republican government, which was at war with the English monarchy and so shared a common enemy, like the English king, common enemy. And the Dutch had been long-standing allies of the English Republicans. And during the Commonwealth and Interregnum years, had made various attempts at establishing a closer union between the two uh, countries. Um, but Sydney also needed a capable military leadership. And here his choice fell on Ludlow, who was widely regarded as the most capable military leader within the wider exile community, um, and somebody who would be able to gather significant uh, loyal support or loyal followers behind him. 
the problem was that Sidney was unable to persuade him to help. And that was mainly because Ludlow was unwilling to collaborate with the Dutch, who in his view could not be trusted. And that had two reasons. First, Ludlow thought the Dutch would be unreliable allies because they were likely to prefer any financial profit before a joint political court. And secondly, the Dutch had very recently, as, as I mentioned earlier, uh, aided the extraordinary rendition of the three English regicides from the United Provinces and delivered them into the hands of the Stuart government that then executed them for treason. Um, so, so he didn't want to work with them. And with Ludlow pulling out of the plot or rather refusing to participate, it was then really hard for Sydney to gain the trust and support of the exile community in the Netherlands and also of the Dutch government. So in the end, Sydney even approached the French king uh, for help and financial support and was then able to persuade him, um, to persuade the king to give him at least a small amount of funds to pay for troops and weapons um, but Sydney then kind of tried to lead the troops himself, which then went ba badly wrong and the whole enterprise collapsed in its early stages. The final straw for that was an attempt to free another former Republican ally and military leader, um, John Lambert, from prison uh, on the Isle of Guernsey to lead the troops. But in the attempt to free him, the people uh, um, that were charged with the task were themselves captured and killed, and that brought the whole scheme um, to collapse also. Please trace Sidney's move to Scarly uh, Montpellier in France, and then his move to uh, Narek in Gascony, um, addressing any or all of the following. His exchange with the Viscount of Turenne, exile perspectives on intersections between the English leveler movement and the French Frondeurs, and or that nostalgic vision espoused to uh, Jean-Baptiste Lantin. Yeah, after, after that failed plot, uh, Sidney retired to the south of France. And he first went to Montpellier in the southeast, and then later to Nerac in the southwest. And again, you know, it was not accidental that he would choose that part of the world, because the southern regions of France were traditionally also Huguenot regions. Montpellier was considered a key Protestant stronghold, and it also had a long history of exchange with England, because of its university, especially the famous medical faculty that attracted scholars from all over Europe, um, including later John Locke. So Sydney would have been able to find English connections there and possibly already knew people there or had contacts that he could approach when he arrived. And also when you, when you kind of look at the map um, of, of the south of France, you can also see how close this area of France was geographically to Geneva and to the Swiss canton. Um, so there were also numerous contacts between Reformed Protestants in Switzerland and the Huguenot France, as well as this connection to England. Um, and this is something that becomes obvious again after uh, the revocation of the Edict of Nantes in 1685, when many French Huguenots left either for Switzerland or England, um, in particular London. And, and Sydney was, was really moving in this transnational European community of Protestants. From Montpellier, Sydney then moved on to Nérac, further west, somewhere between Toulouse and Bordeaux, where he also had 
existing contacts to for, former frondeurs and especially to the family of the Dukes of Bouillon, at whose castle Sydney would come to stay until his return to England in the late 1670s. And I think it's worthwhile here to remind ourselves of the links and parallels between English Republican and French frondeurs that get easily forgotten when you look at the Civil War only from an English perspective. So between 1648 and 53, France itself had a series of aristocratic revolts that were initially opposed to the government of Cardinal Mazarin during the regency of Anne of Austria and ultimately also aimed to limit the powers of her son, the French King Louis XIV. And Sydney was <clears throat> friendly with those rebel families involved in that revolt because they too shared an opposition to arbitrary monarchy as well as their Protestant faith. And what I also found very interesting are the conversations, of course, that you mentioned that Sydney had at the time with people from the French political scene about his own visions and political views. And one of them um, uh, was, uh, um, well, only a few of them were recorded to start with. Uh, but we have, say, one conversation, for instance, that Sydney had with Jean-Baptiste Lantin, a councillor to the Parlement of Dijon who he uh, met at Paris. And in, in this recorded conversation, Sidney outlines his perspective on Republican government in England. And you can see very clearly um, in it that he mourned a missed opportunity in England and that he blamed Oliver Cromwell for destroying his vision of a perfect Commonwealth. According to Sidney, the Commonwealth government that he had helped to establish would have had um, a fair chance if it had been possible to prevent the rise of Cromwell. So Sidney was sure that if Cromwell's son-in-law, Henry Ireton, who was like his second in command, had not died in 1651, the Republic could have been fully established and Ireton could have prevented the rise of Cromwell by seizing power for himself. So it might never have come to this military dictator, uh, dictatorship type thing that Republicans were so opposed to. And he envisioned a Commonwealth government that was based on the rule of law and set up around a council, very much like the existing Council of State, um, with three key magistrates or executive officers who each served for a period of one year under the supervision of that council. And he also hoped for a very strong army and navy that could defend England. Um, abroad and secure its position in the world, which is where the Stuart monarchy had been seen wanting. Um, and besides upholding the rule of law, Sydney's ideal government would also have ensured liberty of conscience, although Sydney uh, did not say explicitly how far this liberty of conscience would extend, if it was just liberty of conscience for Protestants or if he would go as far as Neville, um, that he was open maybe towards liberty of conscience for Catholics also. So we haven't discussed uh, Neville. Um, well, we did briefly. How and why did Neville travel to 17th century cosmopolitan Tuscany and then Rome? Also, as a reluctant spy for the Earl of uh, Clarendon during the dual loyalty crisis, what were Neville's uh, courtier perspectives on the Medici vis-a-vis -vis James Harrington? Well, first of all, uh, Neville went to Italy because he did not have much choice. 
his release, well, his release from the Tower was conditional on leaving England. The English government thought that a rebellious character like Neville should not should be moved as far as possible from any place where he could do any real damage. So letting him go to Italy was a way of solving a problem or removing a problem rather. But Clarendon also seems to have thought that Neville might as well make himself useful while he was abroad and that he owed him something in return for his release. So he was also sent in the role of an informer, expected to report back regularly to the Lord Chancellor, both so Clarendon could check up on where he was, but also so that Neville could tell him what he was hearing and seeing around Rome, where, as we know, the Catholic subjects of Charles had their own kind of machinations going on. Um, and uh, this, this was all about this kind of Catholicism issue, hoping to convert the country back to the old faith and so on, which ha- seemed to have become a possibility again under the new Stuart rule. Um, because while, while Charles II might have been open towards Catholicism, um, well, this is actually interesting because uh, Charles was open towards Catholicism, but Clarendon was not. So uh, Clarendon actually... Uh, uh, wanted to keep a tap on the machinations of other courtiers. And there were some internal kind of conflicts with other courtiers. But that, I mean, that's too far, too deep to go into now. Um, Rome and Tuscany were both interesting for different reasons. Rome, of course, was first of all the center of Catholicism, the seat of the Pope, and also as such a political center. But it was also an important center of culture and of science where many strangers from all over Europe met and exchanged ideas and information. So besides everything else, it was also an important information hub. And um, actually, it was also a great place to just disappear because it was so full of strangers, so full of foreigners, that one more or less just didn't stand out. So it's, it's a good place to go if you want to hide somewhere. Tuscany, too, had had some of that. It was a place of learning and a place of culture, but it was also an important place for trade. And England and Tuscany had very long-standing trading relations. Um, And there was a considerable English merchant community um, in the port of Livorno, which was a hub for trade with the Levant. So even though Tuscany was a Catholic duchy, which was not particularly known for either religious toleration or liberty, um, it was welcoming Protestant merchants and their families as long as they did not flaunt their Protestant beliefs too openly or disrespect of the local customs. Um, it was just a kind of, it made economic sense to do that. So historians also have often remarked on, oh, how strange it was that an English Puritan Republican like Henry Neville would seek out the court in Florence during his exile. But, but when you look at the circumstances, it seems less surprising or unusual, not least because the Tuscan Grand Duke Ferdinando and his son Cosimo were Anglophiles who liked to surround themselves with the many English guests they had at the court and because the many travelers who would pass through Tuscany on their grand tour. And Neville himself had been one of those travelers like 20 years earlier as a grand tourist and from that time still had contacts in Florence. Um, but the Medici were also seen by some Republicans as quite different from other princes, mainly because they were not some old hereditary noble family that relied on their title and influence, but essentially a banking family that had then 
kind of build themselves up and risen to their wealth and social status through their own efforts, through their own labor and their own merit. So Neville's Republican ally and friend James Harrington that we talked about earlier had explained this quite well in one of his political writings, that the Medici had acquired their position through their own labor and only over time come to strengthen this position and influence through further acquiring land so that their title as Dukes of Florence came as a result of that. So they didn't have the title first, but the title came almost as something they had gained. And they could thus be seen as self-made princes because their power naturally followed from the ownership of property and not the other way around. How did local Protestants facilitate Ludlow's move to Lausanne and then Vevey, Lake Geneva? Where exactly did Ludlow live? Um, yes, Ludlow's move to Lausanne had really been engineered by Jean de Labadie and Johann Heinrich Hummels, um, who commended Ludlow, Corley, and Lyle to the Council of Bern, which then granted them asylum on religious grounds and then allowed them to settle in the French-speaking Pays de Vaud, which was then under the authority of Bern. The exiles were then given friendly welcome, received into the local community. They were allocated their own pew in the local church of St. Francis. Um, but part of the problem with Lausanne was that it was still a bit too conspicuous. Uh, it had still too many visitors and things going on. So over time, there were more and more exiles coming uh, because they knew Ludlow was there and it was a safe place to be and so on. Uh, but more people had been joining them. And this little exile community was becoming a bit too big to conceal in a place like Lausanne. So one of the exile's friends from the council, a guy called Emanuel Steiger, recommended they should move to the slightly smaller and quieter and, and the somewhat more secluded Vevey um, further down along the shore of Lake Geneva. And here we can really see a community pulling together to protect Ludlow and the other exiles. Because we know that Ludlow and at least some of the others lived at the private home of one of the town councillors, Samson Dubois, and that they were welcomed into the community with many warm words and presents and a lot of goodwill. But um, Dubois' house was also interesting or important for other reasons, because it was located near one of the town's gates and provided access to the bell tower. So Ludlow could ring the bell in an emergency and thus had like his very own alarm system if he was in danger. And this was, of course, not trivial because we know the regicides were being persecuted by agents of the English crown, by random adventurers hoping for reward, and it was quite necessary to be on the alert. Later on, after having stayed in Vevey for a number of years, Ludlow then moved to another house, also in the town, uh, belonging to a friend of the councillor Dubois. And we know from a later informer's report that, that has been preserved in the English state papers that Ludlow was actually sleeping in a granary where he could then pull up the ladder at night and then protect himself from any intruders while he was sleeping. So, so we can see also from the assassination of the regicide John Lyle in Lausanne, these precautions were really necessary. So let's, discuss, let's elaborate a little bit on uh, their daily lives. 
if you can, please very briefly examine the roles of languages, news, financial stability, false names, the specter of extradition, uh, the killing of John Lyle, as well as uh, royalist assassinations machinations uh, or regicide retribution in the lives of the Republican exiles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's, what's easy to forget when you're dealing with political exiles is the day-to-day life. Um, it's easy to say, oh, so-and-so went into exile, but what does that really mean? So it means essentially that these men had to suddenly uproot, leave everything behind to go into hiding in a foreign country without knowing when and if they would ever return. So this meant they had to make arrangements, not just for their travels, but also for their long-term financial provision. Accommodation, they had to um, get by on a day-to-day level. Um, so all this requires some sort of planning. And it started also with foreign languages while traveling abroad. It, it's, it's not like in the present day where you can just expect everyone to speak English. It's like the lingua franca among the more educated people on the continent was rather Latin. And in many cases, French was also useful, especially for the exiles in France and Switzerland. And all three of them, Ludlow, Sydney, and Neville, had some French and some Latin, and Neville clearly was also fluent in Italian, as we can tell from his correspondence with Italian friends, which he, he would always do in, in their language. And the exiles then also had to make sure they had enough money to live on. Um, Ludlow and Neville. Um, had money provided by their families, by relations back in England. Ludlow had managed to collect some money from his estates in England and Ireland before they were taken from him by by the royalists, by the the new government. And his wife and mother-in-law also provided him with funds while he was abroad. Neville had support from his royalist brother back home. well, actually, Sidney suffered the most financially because he had fallen out with his father, who didn't supply him with any money. And so we see Sidney, for instance, in many cases, relying on free board and lodging at the houses of important people like the Prince Panfilio in Frascati near Rome, or he's staying at the castle of the Dukes of Bouillon in Iraq. And he's possibly even borrowing money from the Quaker merchant Benjamin Furley in Rotterdam. It was also assumed that Ludlow, later in his life, when when the funds from his family and from England had dried up, was getting some sort of pension from the local government in Bern to to, uh, subsidize himself. And then, of course, there's the issue of going undetected. How do you hide as a regicide if there's money on your head, if there's kind of like a proclamation out for, 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 for your capture? So... The government in England had issued proclamations for the arrest of the regicide. They were wanted men. They had lived in permanent fear. Um, So they essentially um, decided to live under assumed names in remote places, hoping that no one would find them. But there's evidence of various assassination attempts and one assassination that actually ended in the death of John Lyle, um, which proves that this was not. Uh, so easy because the exiles were being watched until well, well into the 1670s, if not beyond. There were always shady figures lurking around Vevey and Lausanne who were probably sent from France, and it was virtually impossible to be completely safe. So after, after some such attempts on the lives of Ludlow and the other exiles in Vevey, for instance, John Lyell, 
decided to move back to Lausanne to distance himself from Ludlow, who he thought was probably the main target. But a group of assassins then headed by, by an Irishman called John Reardon shot him dead on one day on, on, on his way to the morning sermon on the public marketplace in front of the church um, in Lausanne. So even though the exiles were far away from home, they still feared retribution from the restoration regime and its agents, and they remained in fear pretty much until their death. So for them, it was particularly important always to stay up to date also with news from England and from elsewhere in Europe, both to monitor the political situation at home and the political climate more broadly. News were very important for strategizing what to do next, um, but newsletters, pamphlets, and so on that were sent by their various contacts were also the exile's connection to the outside world in their very secluded life. And they consumed really large quantities of various news publications from different countries and in different languages. As we can actually see from uh, when we look at Ludlow's memoirs that were written during his time in exile, because he refers to many publications by name and also sometimes quotes from them verbatim or even copies entire sections from his reading into his own um, writing, into his own memoir. So this last part of the podcast is going to deal with the writings and publications of the exiles. In his 1663 French translation and adaptation of the speeches and prayers of some of the late king's judges entitled the judges judge justifying themselves, as well as from the posthumous voice from the Watchtower, why did Edmund Ludlow attempt to demonstrate puritanical suffering and republican purpose for the Lord God Almighty? And what about his skepticism of Dutch republicans that you alluded to earlier? Uh, yes, Ludlow's publication of this French pamphlet is very interesting, because after his flight to Geneva, he received news about the trials and executions of a number of regicides back in England that had been his friends and allies, and who now had to pay with their lives for the role in the trial of the king. Um, Ludlow had opposed the English monarchy because he saw, uh, saw Charles I as an imposter and as the usurper of God's throne on earth. He thought that there could be no other king on earth than Jesus, and that any worldly monarch was therefore illegitimate. So the regicides in killing the English king had actually done God's will. And the fact that they were now being taken to account for their actions and executed themselves was to him an act of martyrdom for their faith. So they had died because they had fought for a just cause and for their faith. And Ludlow wanted the world to know about this, about the, the injustice that they had suffered and about their martyrdom. And there was an English pamphlet that he was using that had been illegally printed about the trials and executions of those regicides, which also included their dying speeches and the last prayers that they had made on the scaffold. And this pamphlet was full of radical Puritan ideology, justifying the regicide, justifying the actions of the regicides for their belief. We do not know if the speeches and prayers recorded in this pamphlet were even real, but they represented the essence of what the English regicides had said or would have said at the time of their death 
And this was a very powerful statement of the course, and Ludlow wanted this to be publicized beyond the confines of England and the English-speaking world, to rally fellow Protestants, especially Huguenots in France and elsewhere, behind the regicide. So he decided to have this translated, and he also checked up upon the, on the translation to make sure that it was translated in the way that he had intended it to be. So this was almost like his, his personal course, maybe a bit of survivor's guilt also, that he had survived while his, his friends and allies had to die, and, 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 and he now shows their case to the world. Ladlow's memoirs that were written as The Voice from the Watchtower also fulfilled a very similar purpose. They were part justification for his actions during and after the English Civil War, propaganda for the Republican cause, but they were also a form of spiritual diary that reflected on God's purpose in his life. So he always reflects on what he is doing and asking himself if this is what the Lord wants from him or trying to work out where the Lord wants him to go, what the Lord wants him to do. Um, however, as you say, the memoirs also reveal Ludlow's opinions on contemporary politics at the time of writing. And unlike other Republicans such as Sidney, he was, for instance, a lot more skeptical of the Dutch as potential allies in the struggle against the Restoration government, um, which was one of his main reasons that he refused to take part in the plot to invade England. Um, because Ludlow clearly acknowledged that the Dutch had been allies during the interregnum and that there had been attempts at closer union and so on between them. But the two Protestant trading nations also had fought a war in the 1650s over trade competition. And the Dutch had recently also aided, or at least not prevented, the English government's capture of other regicides. So he was warning very strongly against trusting them as allies because he thought they would always prefer their own financial gain to any political alliance. And it was probably not wrong to assume that the Dutch, in the bigger scheme of things, had less to gain from a Republican success than the exiles might have hoped because it might have been in their interest to keep England weak and divided rather than as a strong political partner, but also um, a competitor in trade. But I mean, we will never know. Similarly, for our listeners, please compare uh, Algernon Sidney's posthumous publication Court Maxims with his subsequent discourses addressing any or all of the following. The Commonwealthmen arguments for a limited constitutional monarchy, the dearth of religious support for the courtier evil monarchy by divine right, quoting the evil, uh, the promotion of interdenominational liberty of conscience, and or uh, uh, Sydney's advocacy for an Anglo-Dutch alliance against the French, and that 1666 cryptic prophecy of such an alliance. Yeah, six, uh, uh, Sydney's court maxims are very interesting because the manuscript was only discovered relatively recently in terms of historical scholarship in the 1970s. Um, and beforehand, the only, the one major Republican work we had from Sydney was the discourses, which were thought to have been written at the time of the exclusion crisis, when the Whig Party in Parliament tried to exclude the Catholic James Duke of York from the succession to the English throne. So the discourses were, among others, a response to Robert Filmer's Patriarcha, a defense of divine right monarchy and the hereditary succession 
that Republicans were very much opposed to. And of course, the discourses were the piece of writing that brought Sidney to the scaffold for treason. In 1683, he was implicated in the Rye House plot to kill the king and the Duke of York. And because the court needed a second witness for his conviction, the manuscript was used as proof of his guilt. Government agents had seized the manuscript from his study um, and taken it and used it in evidence. So, so writing here actually was considered as political agency. And Sidney was convicted on the evidence provided by his, by his manuscript. Now, the discovery of the court maxims shows the discourses in a slightly different light, because they are evidence that Sidney had been holding the type of Republican opinions presented in the discourses for much longer, and that they were not the result of the 1680s, but actually had been developing and maturing over decades. So the court maxims were written during the 1660s, around the time that Sidney was planning the invasion of England with the backing of the exile. Um, and they were also very likely circulating in manuscript or intended for manuscript circulation in that, in that kind of exile community. So like the pamphlet on the trials of the regicides that, that uh, Ludlow had published, the maxims were also a propaganda piece, a rallying cry for the Republican cause. On the one hand, they repeated a lot of the arguments against absolute divine right hereditary monarchy that had been brought forward against Charles I earlier in the 1630s and 40s, and they restated those arguments again against the government of his son, Charles II. A very important argument in Sydney's Republican thought is the issue of government accountability. Sovereignty was thought to be held not by the monarch, but by the people represented in Parliament, who made the laws by which they were governed. So the monarch was considered as governing on the people's behalf and as someone accountable to them. And if the monarch acted against the law, he could be deposed. So rebellion against a monarch who was violating the law and transgressing his authority was in Sydney's view perfectly legitimate and not only legal but a downright duty. However, it is also important to note that Sidney was not against all monarchy in principle. He considered it as perfectly acceptable to elevate a person to a monarchical role who was much wiser and much better than everyone else, but his merit and superiority had to be respected, or if a monarch was appointed by the people. But this was all provided that this monarch fulfilled his duty. What was not acceptable to Sidney was the monarch who succeeded to the throne simply by right of hereditary succession. Because Sidney argued that a king could be mad or drunk and nobody would be able to do anything about it. By following the hereditary system, it was unlikely that you would get the best suited person. In fact, you might end up with an imbecile and be unable to remove him. And it was also not right in Sidney's view that a monarch should have absolute unlimited power, in particular with respect to religion that you had the Church of England, in which the bishops were loyal to the monarch and part of the legislative through their seat in the House of Lords, and also had a role in the, in, the, in the courts, the church courts, that the bishops ordained the clergy and imposed a book of common prayer to worship from. And on the other hand, those believers outside the Church of England, such as the Independents or Quakers or other types of radical Puritans and fanatics, as they were called, were excluded from office 
from equal participation in society, prohibited from meeting, from worshipping in their own manner, and subject also to a number of penal laws. So um, Sydney objected to this hierarchical Church of England because it criminalized people with dissenting religious views and prevented them from living their own faith. And this turned him into a strong defender also of liberty of conscience. And this liberty of conscience could best be secured, uh, in his opinion, in a Republican government. How did Neville's 1668 Isle of Pines, a narrative of shipwreck, survival, and English tribal warfare, serve as a commentary on the restored monarchy and the Second Anglo-Dutch War, also as an example of utopian fiction and a work of English Republican defiance? In your response, and if at all possible, please briefly address possible translators for and the fictional letter added to the French Leiden edition, as well as the role of uh, the, the slave uh, Philippa in the uh, narrative. Um, yeah, um, Henry Neville's Isle of Pines of uh, 1668 was a, quite a curious piece of writing. Outwardly, it looked like a travel narrative, or rather a story of shipwreck and survival in an unknown part of the world. But of course, when you look at it more closely, it was something completely different. The Isle of Pines told the story of one man and four women, one of them, the black slave Philippa that you mentioned, who were traveling on a merchant ship during the reign of Queen Elizabeth. When they then got into a bad storm, suffered a shipwreck somewhere in the Pacific Ocean, but managed to be a, to 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 rescue themselves. So the five kind of survived the shipwreck, um, rescue themselves on the ship's bowsprit, and then land on an uninhabited island, which is everything they need to live. It has rich rich vegetation, animals they can easily that can easily be caught and eaten, and a pleasant climate that makes clothes almost unnecessary. And um, all in all, it looks like the perfect utopian world in which life is easy and the shipwreck group soon start to fall into idleness and sloth, but also entering into sexual relations and producing large numbers of children so that their little island society then grows considerably over the generations, during all which time nobody ever comes to the island to bother them or to disturb their life. But then, suddenly, after several generations of life on the island, without any obvious uh, rule except that of the original father, the natural order in the country be- begins to disintegrate, and the island nation then deci- descends into a civil war between different factions. And it's, it's clearly not hard to identify this idyllic island nation falling into civil war as England in the mid-17th century. And this event, and after this event then, a basic code of law is passed and the island remains quiet again for many years um, until it then is discovered by a Dutch ship passing by on its way to the East Indies. And the Dutch visitors inspect the island, they meet the natives, they give presents to the current ruler, the Prince William Pine, and it's immediately noticeable that the Dutch visitors, while pretending to come in good faith, behave like colonizers happening on some uncivilized country that they can just bring under their control and exploit for economic purposes. And then just as the Dutch visitors are about to leave the island, again, another rebellion breaks out between the different tribes on the island because the descendant of the black slave woman is thought to have raped a woman from another tribe. 
and the island ruler is completely helpless and unable to put down the rebellion or do anything about it. But he requires the help of his Dutch visitors to issue shots from their guns and put down the insurrection and punish the rebels. And of course, this story is published one year after the English defeat in the Second Anglo-Dutch War. Um, and to me, that reads as a warning by Neville that the Dutch might appear as friends and to come in peace to help, but that they eventually have their own gain in mind, uh, in mind and will only exploit the weak English for their personal interests. So the story is really a warning to heed the Dutch, but also an appeal to the English government to get out of its lethargy and turn England from a backward country that drifts along, long forgotten somewhere on the seas into the powerful and successful country that it could be if it were properly governed. So the island's decline, and thus implicitly England's decline, is blamed very much on a succession of unfit rulers who governed by their paternal power only but who did not build any, any kind of modern constitutional government fit for purpose. In particular, I think the criticism is directed at Charles II, who was considered as someone who took a greater interest in his mistresses and in his private pleasures than in the matter of government, and whose court was also associated with corruption and decline. But the Isle of Pines is also a reminder that England has a lot of potential in its natural resources, in its geographical location, and in its growing population, that um, it is now time to act and do something with that great resource to compete again on the world stage. And the figure of the black slave that you mentioned is interesting because, of course, the slave woman has, uh, has this role. She contributes from the beginning to the creation of the New Island Society, but she's also the one who indirectly disturbs the peace by giving birth to a tribe of rebels who threaten the stability of the Commonwealth. Every time there's a commotion, every time there's a rebellion or something, it is, it's one of her tribe, of, of her descendants who kind of causes it. The slave is kind of seen as a hard worker, but also as the mother of many children who does not seem to suffer any pain in childbirth, who performs tasks that the white women would not do, such as keeping watch at night while the others are sleeping. But I'm also not sure if we could see this as an endorsement of slavery, or again, maybe as a warning that the exploitation of slave labor also leads to unrest because slavery and Republican thought is generally a state to be avoided and the source of potential conflict. So again, this is very ambiguous here. This publication too, like the pamphlet on the trials of the regicides, was translated into other European languages. And in fact, the Isle of Pines proved to be a real bestseller in later 17th century Europe with numerous translations appearing in Dutch, in French, in German, Italian, and Danish, all within the first couple of years after its first publication in England. And like uh, the latter translation of the regicide pamphlet, it might have been seen as propaganda on behalf of the Republican cause, circulating in the same Protestant circles as the former. And there is especially this French translation published by Abraham Gauguin in Leiden, which might be ascribed to that Protestant network and that has this foreword or, 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 or covering letter rather um, that commends this pamphlet for close reading um, to a wider community um, 
for an imagined community of readers in that um, Protestant uh, world. What happened to Neville after his 1667 return to England, as well as Sydney almost a decade later? Also, given the regicide issue, what happened to Ludlow when he attempted to return to England at the end of the Glorious Revolution? Yeah. Um, Neville returned to England as the first of the three. He returned round about 1667. And besides publishing the Isle of Pines, actually largely kept his head down in order not to attract the attention of the authorities. So we don't have any other published writings ascribed to him until he published a fictitious letter pretended to be written by the Florentine political thinker Niccolo Machiavelli in 1675, which was long after Machiavelli's death, which opposed the Test Act and other perceived injustices against religious and political dissenters in England. Sidney returned to England about a decade later, shortly after the death of his father, and immediately got back into political action on behalf of his old Republican cause. Actually, both he and Neville both stood for seats in Parliament during the exclusion crisis, though none of them was actually successful in obtaining a seat. I think Sidney was even returned, but then couldn't take his seat because of, of uh, issues arising in Parliament. And both Sidney and Neville also, interestingly, wrote their most well-known political works, the Discourses um, and, the, and Plato Redivivus, both reviving old Republican ideas from the Civil War period and adapting them for the new political situation both criticizing divine right hereditary monarchy as well as advocating rule of law and religious liberty. Ludlow did not return to England until after the Glorious Revolution in 1689. And it, it might be reasonable to assume that that's a safe time to return after, after the regime change uh, and after parliamentary mon monarchy is established. But even then, his return proved very short-lived because his old opponents still existed. They found out that he was there and soon also started kind of persecuting him again because uh, the proclamation that had been issued for his capture um, was still out. It was still in force. It had never been withdrawn. And he was still a wanted man, if you like. And after a brief period in England, and by that time already in his 70s, he had to flee the country yet again and return to Switzerland for good, where he died and was buried in the local church. Um, so really, for, for, for him, this exile situation never really came to an end. He was, he was the one, the one regicide amongst the three, um, who really never was able to return to England and, and live in England again. But the real long-term significance of these English Republican exiles really lies in their, in their legacy of their Republican thought. Um, we can see that the exiles we talked about um, held on to their radical political opinions very much to the end, carrying their ideas from the English civil wars into the Restoration period and putting them down on paper. And their works have survived and uh, become classics of Republican thought that were widely circulated and read and transmitted to later generations of thinkers, both in Europe and in America, 
where they influenced revolutionaries and constitution builders so that the ideas really still leave traces in our modern Western democracies. And in the West, we now live by the principles of freedom they defended. We live by the principle of popular sovereignty, by the rule of law and religious liberty for people of all faiths. And our modern democracies might not be what, would not be what they are without these very inspiring, I think, revolutionary Republican thinkers. I have one final question. What's going on with you next? Uh, um, do you have any plans for any further studies? Anything you can disclose at this time? Um, well, yes. I'm actually starting a completely new project with the um, Marie Curie Fellowship at the University of Newcastle. Um, and, and, and this is almost like <laughs> um, the sequel, I would say. You know, it's very closely related to this Exiles uh, a book, almost like the next installment of the story. So I'm going to look at English Republican ideas and translation networks in early modern Germany between 1640 and 1848. So between the English civil wars and the mid-19th century revolutions on, on the European continent. And I'm going to look at how English Republican ideas were transmitted in Europe, especially in the German-speaking lands, through translations of English political authors into German, but also into other languages, such as Latin, French, and Dutch, um, which all played a role in that transmission story. And I'm also trying to find out more about the people and the networks that were behind those translations and that contributed to this diffusion of ideas. So, so, so I'm really kind of moving out of the 17th century and uh, taking a much longer-term approach to ideas transmission. And I'm continuing with uh, the transnational theme that I think is so important for that period. Well, I hope you remember New Books in History for that particular work. It sounds really promising. Uh, thank you. Well, I'm very much looking forward to this. Okay, so um, I thank you for being on the podcast today. Well, thank you for having me, you know. <laughs> good fun. So the book <laughs> the book is The English Republican Exiles in Europe During the Restoration, published earlier this year by Cambridge University Press, a passage in the Ideas and Context series. On behalf of uh, Dr. Malberg, um, this is Ryan Tripp. I've been your host for New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Please tune in next time.